welcome to Change Redefining Success, the podcast designed to inspire you and give you actionable information to enhance, up-level, reimagine, and reinvent your life and your livelihood. I'm your host, first-class mentor and certified profiting from your passions coach, Kate Fessler. My guest today is Dr. Valerie Young. Valerie spent seven years commuting 90 miles a day to her corporate job before getting one of life's unwelcome wake-up calls. That was over two decades ago. Today, she is both a dreamer in residence at changingcourse.com, as well as an internationally recognized expert and speaker on something called the imposter syndrome. Valerie built not one, but two six-figure businesses, and in doing so, redefined what it means to be successful. Valerie's career-related advice is cited around the world, including BBC Radio, Yahoo Financial News, O Magazine, More Magazine, Wall Street Journal, USA Weekend, Chicago Tribune, Boston Globe, Kiplinger's, Entrepreneur, Glamour in the UK, L, Red Book, Woman's Day, The Sydney Morning Herald, Irish Independent, and dozens more. Valerie is an internationally recognized expert on imposter syndrome. She takes a humorous and highly practical approach to overcoming imposter feelings. Valerie has spoken to audiences of up to 3,000 at such organizations as Facebook, BP, Intel, Chrysler, Apple, and many more, too numerous to name. She is the author of the award-winning book, The Secret Thoughts of Successful Women from Crown Publishing, available in five languages and consistently on Amazon's top 100 books for women in finance. Welcome, Valerie. Hey, I'm so happy to be here, Kate. You once had a 90-mile commute. Was that round trip or one way? <laughs> that, that was round trip. It was an hour each way. So it took 10 hours out of my life every single week. Oh, my goodness. What were you doing then, and what was that like for you? Uh, you know, it was actually my first real job job, Kate. I was a graduate student for a long time, and I was doing consulting, and it, I was probably you know, almost 30 when I got my real job. And it was great pay and great people. It was in a, you know, it was in a great corporation. I started out in uh, two years in corporate training, and then I moved into a, into a marketing role in strategic marketing. And, and I actually really liked the people. I actually really liked my boss, which is unusual. Um, but, you know, in, in no way was it satisfying uh, the, the work. You know, we were selling you know, estate planning and financial services, uh, and insurance to the affluent. So it just, you know, it didn't really speak to me on a on a kind of a core, you know, soul work kind of level. Um, mm. And then my, my mom passed away totally unexpectedly. She was 61, uh, massive heart attack, leading cause of death in women. Mm. And I just, you know, I just realized it's like, I've, I've got to make a change. I've, I've got to change my life. So what did you do then? You quit your job. And what did you do next? Well, I didn't just, you know, most people can't just afford, myself included, to just kind of quit quit their job. So I actually went to a smaller company, closer to home, shorter commute. Uh, got, I, I describe it as kind of changing deck chairs on the Titanic uh, because I, I got there and, and realized within a couple of months that, you know, the, the people were, let's say, challenging, right? Somebody kind of jokingly said, same same circus, different clowns. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> right. and, and it kind of hit me. It kind of hit me then, Kate, that I didn't need a new job. Uh, I didn't even need a new career. What I really needed was was a whole new life. You know, I wanted to find a way to get back to being my own boss, to get back to working from home. So I, I really kind of started started there figuring out, you know, kind of what did I want my life to look like? Yeah, so that you are the first person that I've ever heard ask that question. 
And, you know, being a student of yours, I ask my clients that question and uh, no one can answer it. How long did it take you to figure out, like, what do you want your life to look like and that you can actually have that choice? It didn't. It wasn't hard to figure out what I wanted my life to look like because it was really, you know, it was just a few core things that I wanted. I wanted to work from home and I wanted to work for myself, you know, and everything else was negotiable. You know, I didn't like need, you know, a fabulous view or a big house. It wasn't for me. It wasn't like mandatory. I live by the ocean or anything like that. You know, I just wanted to simplify things, get up when I wanted to get up. You know, I don't want to say work when I wanted to because, you know, you've got to work, but I just wanted to kind of do my own thing. So that part wasn't hard. It was figuring out, okay, what could I do to generate income so that I can work from home and, and be my own boss, which of course is, you know, the trick for most of us to try to figure out. Right. The all important income. So uh, how did you come to create Changing Course? Uh, I Well, years before that, I had actually read a book by Barbara Sher called Wishcraft and and started a little wishcraft um, group with some folks where we'd read a chapter and get together and meet and all help each other figure out what we wanted to be when we grew up. And that was helpful to get clear on, you know, what do I really like to do? But then it was really Barbara Winter's book, um, uh, Making a Living Without a Job. I went to a workshop. This is This is what kind of a corporate person I was, Kate. I took one of my employees with me to <laughs> to the learning annex in, in in Hartford to to go to a workshop on how to make a living without a job. And that's what <laughs> kind of introduced me to the idea that, you know, I I could work for myself and I can have multiple streams of income. And what I discovered in, you know, running around reading all these books on, you know, figuring out what you love to do, which is which is the first thing I did when I got to the the crazy workplace was like, okay, what could I do? What do I like to do? Read all these books. I realized I liked that whole conversation of figuring out what do you like to do and, and making it uh, happen and working at what you you love. And right around that same time, I saw in Parade Magazine, there was an article, this is before the internet, there was an article about something called the Tightwad Gazette. It was a, a newsletter and these people had become millionaires, you know, sharing all their tips. It was a hard copy newsletter, probably eight pages, like 25 bucks people pay and got it six times a year with all these tips on how to save money. And this kind of bell went off in my head. So I, I sent away for these cassette tapes on how to start a newsletter. And I went to a workshop in Boston on how to, you know, have a successful newsletter. And I started, um, you know, chipping away. And it started out as a, you know, again, hardcover subscriber newsletter. I think it was $24, $29. Came out every other month. And I then, know. Uh, I used to subscribe later, to that. <laughs> Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, that was 1995 I started uh -huh. that. Uh, and then I, I went online. Uh, I got, um, I was going to be, um, yeah, I put myself in a position to be, to do a sidebar in, in USA Today magazine. And when I say put myself in the position, I pitched them to do an article on, you know, what I, the work that I was doing and change, basically this idea of changing course from having a boss to being your own boss. And I said, no, we're not really interested in that, but we have an article coming up on how to go from a two-family income to a one-family income, and we need a sidebar with some tips. You know, would oh. you like to do that? Now, I know nothing about that, so I just said yes. <laughs> I figured, <laughs> how hard can it be? I'll just come up with some common sense tips. And I actually interviewed some financial planners, and 
but but I knew, you know, it was my name would be in there, and this newfangled thing called the 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 World Wide Web, the www, was just coming, you know, coming along, 1998. So I got myself uh, one of those newfangled websites and, and went mm. online. Awesome. Yeah, so I do remember getting those actual physical copies of the newsletter back before email. How many people would you say you've reached over the lifetime of Changing Course? It must be hundreds oh of God. thousands, if not more. Yeah, you know, I, I, my newsletter, you know, it's, let me be clear, I wasn't making millions of dollars on the, the newsletter. Um, and actually, over time, I turned it into a free newsletter. So, you know, it, it's hard to say because people can really now, you know, can just go to the website and, and read information on the blog or, or poke around the site. But it's the the appetite for doing something that you love and working on your own terms hasn't waned. It really started at the time that I started the newsletter. That was back when headlines were, you know, AT&T laying off 80,000 people and the whole contract with the employee was changing and people had mm -hmm. to, you know, create their own thing in corporations and couldn't depend on pensions. And, you know, there was this movement of, you know, Wall Street Journal would cover CEOs quitting to go teach history in a, you know, difficult neighborhood and, and you know, doing more satisfying kinds of things. So I was really, you know, jumping on that, that trend, although things have shifted a little bit that, you know, more and more people either need or want to have their own thing. So it's really just a continuation of what really started 20 years ago. Yeah, I think there's a bit of a shift. I remember, you know, in the in the great, what are, you, what are we calling it? The Great Recession. Um, mm -hmm. Self-employment was really sort of a euphemism for unemployed. But yeah. I think people really sort of started to embrace that, well, I might not be able to get another job, so maybe I ought to think about how to create my own. Yeah, which is a big shift. You know, I think millennials are much more open to that, and now they've, you know, called the gig economy and, you know, kind of make it, try to hip it up and make it cool. But it it really speaks to the notion of, of multiple streams of income, that you don't have to. That was the big aha for me, you know, with, with Barbara Winter's book, was that everybody, myself included, was trying to come up with that one big idea that was going to replace your entire salary. And that's difficult to do. You're actually better off coming up with, you know, three or four $25,000, you know, income streams and trying to find that one big thing. Right, right. So you are the creator of the Profiting from Your Passions program, of which I am one of your certified coaches. What led you to create that program? Well, I just started informally coaching people and I wasn't even trying to coach them. I wasn't even thinking of it as coaching really Kate. I would just start grilling people who I would meet, you know, shuttle drivers and things like that. You know, what what do you love to do? What would you rather be doing? And I would start telling them about resources and books and did you know about this or that? And they'd be scrambling for paper and writing things down and, and I I got really excited doing it. So then I, you know, said, Well I'm pretty good at this, so maybe I'll start, you know, hanging out my, my shingle and, and working with people and helping them connect the dots between, you know, what do you love to do and what do you want your life to look like and how can you monetize that? I did that for a number of years and every so often I'd run into somebody, a client, who they were entrepreneurial, they were idea people, they were big picture folks, they liked helping people. And I would say, have you ever thought about doing what I do? 
And they would always say yes. They thought about it. But then they'd say one of two things. Yes, but I didn't want to say anything because I didn't want you to think I was competing with you, mm. which is a very employee thinking. You know, I'm not mm-hmm. the least bit worried. There's enough work in the world. I couldn't possibly work with everybody if I wanted to. Um, and, or they'd say, uh, I'd love to, but I wouldn't know where to begin. And when you hear a problem, you know, you need to recognize that means that there's an opportunity. So I did know where to begin. So I just started kind of documenting what felt like, you know, in some ways common sense or things I learned along the way that to do or not to do, what works, what doesn't work. And I just started documenting it and then, you know, advertised it to my list. Look, I'm going to do this course. I'm going to teach you how to be kind of outside the job box career coaches is what I originally Mm -hmm. called it. Yeah. Um, a bunch of people signed up, and now we've had over over 300 people from 19 countries around the world have gone through the program. Basically, as you know, I'm teaching them to be, you know, career coaches, uh, business idea brainstormers for clients who want to make a living without a job. Right. Right. And I think there are a lot of people out there uh, who do want to do that. And I think the world is a better place for having that opportunity. So uh, thank you for creating that. So well, the um, problem is you go to a career center and, and they are 100% job centric. Yes. You know, traditional mm-hmm. career coaches don't know how to think about self-employment. So it does, you, you're right, it does really fill, you know, fill a gap out there. Yeah, that is true. And there are a lot of people who will help you write your resume and and do a lot of things, help you with your interview skills. Um, and and it, it's still, you know, I mean, primarily it's still a job focused um, world. But for the few um, and increasingly many who want to take a different approach, um, I think the opportunities are much greater than they used to be. Absolutely. I mean, all the barriers are down. With the internet, there's just no excuse. You know, any you could live really, literally, almost anywhere in the world with an internet connection and run some kind of a business. Yes, isn't that a wonderful thing? Ah, huh? technology really can't is. live with it, can't live without it. <laughs> I know. Huh? Yep. Well, we've got to take a short break, and when we come back, the secret thoughts of successful women. Do you feel as smart and capable as everyone thinks you are? Hi, I'm Sandra Yancey, founder and CEO of eWomen Network. Are you ready to rise up and share all your greatness to the world? Stop playing small and settling for mediocrity? If so, then you need to join us at our eWomen Network Entrepreneur Conference and Business Expo in Dallas this year, August 3rd through the 5th. There will be hundreds of women entrepreneurs from all over the world waiting to meet you to share knowledge, wisdom, and even partnerships. Get ready to be coached by me and learn from other multi-million dollar speakers who will teach, inspire, motivate, and guide you to transform your thinking from small to big. And you can't beat the food and fun at our Saturday night dance party either. Look, no one makes it alone, so it's time to stop trying to be the COE, chief of everything, and step into your role as CEO. There is nothing like the eWomen Network Conference to bring out your genius and help you take action on living your dream. Register at eWomenNetwork.com. Thanks for joining us. Back now with your host, Kate Fessler. Welcome back. You're listening to Change, Redefining Success. I'm Kate Fessler, and today I'm speaking with Valerie Young. 
Valerie, you are an internationally recognized expert on the imposter syndrome. Tell me about that. What is it and how do I know if I have it? <laughs> well, I, I have it, so that's why I speak <laughs> about it. Um, you know, actually, let me tell you the first time I heard about imposter syndrome. It, it's actually more accurately, it's called the imposter phenomenon in the world of psychology. But I was about probably 22 years old, Kate. I was in a doctoral program at the same university where my mom was working as a night janitor. And somebody brought in a paper by Dr. Pauline Clance and Dr. Suzanne Imes. Those are the two psychologists who first coined the term the imposter phenomenon. And what they found was a lot of, you know, accomplished, successful, intelligent, capable people felt like they had just kind of, you know, slipped through the system undetected and, and they were going to be found out. They, they thought, well, you know, sure, I'm successful, but I can explain all that. I've just been lucky or I had a lot of help or they just like me. Mm -hmm. uh, and they were, you know, very dismissive or minimize their accomplishments. And then, of course, you know, kind of live in fear that people are going to find out that you're you're not all that they think you are. Mm -hmm. So you said you have it. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, yeah, that, the amazing thing when she when she brought that paper and was I just, just sat there like nodding my head like a bobblehead doll, like, oh, my God, that's me. And then I looked around the room and all the other graduate students were nodding their heads. So, so we decided to start a little imposter support group, and that went pretty well for a couple of weeks. And But then pretty soon I started to have this nagging sense that even though everyone else was saying they were an imposter, you know, I knew I was the only real imposter. <laughs> so I became, it sounds like a super imposter. Uh, so I became so fascinated by this topic that I, I changed my dissertation topic and looked more broadly at, you know, women's self-limiting patterns and, and philosophies. Now, at the time, very beginning, they thought imposter syndrome was specific to women, but they very quickly determined that a lot of men feel this way as well. So it's not gender-specific, but you know, for a host of reasons, women as a group, we do tend to be more susceptible. Uh, and I think as importantly, we tend, it, it tends to hold us back more. Yeah. So you wrote a book called The Secret Thoughts of Successful Women. I'm guessing some of those thoughts are what you discovered in the imposter syndrome. Yeah, definitely. Those are, uh, you know, s some of the thoughts. Fundamentally, it comes down to, to confidence. And if, if I could just t take a minute, I have to tell you, I hate the title of my book, The Secret Thoughts of Successful <laughs> Women. I, I fought against that title with Random House. Clearly, I lost that battle. Um, but I hate it, Kate, because for, for a couple of reasons. One, it leaves out men, and there are some men who painfully experience imposter feelings. Mm -hmm. uh, but also, even women who, by all accounts, are successful, they don't, for reasons actually explained in the book, women don't often resonate with the term successful. So, mm. you know, full professors, you know, perfectly capable women leaders would, would tell me, your book was sitting on my desk, and someone came in and saw it and said, oh, what are your secret thoughts? <laughs> and they went, wow, I realized they were talking about me. It's like, yes, oh. you but we don't identify with that term, so which I knew was going to happen. That so if you saw that title in the bookstore, I wouldn't pick up the book because I, I don't know that I'm that curious about what successful women think secretly. You know. <laughs> well, it certainly gives a, a somewhat misleading impression. You're not quite sure what you're going to find out <laughs> that they're yeah, secretly the thinking about. Explains it. Yeah, I mean, if you read the subtitle, why why capable people, you know, suffer from imposter syndrome and how to thrive in spite of it. Now that, you know, that makes, that's more clear about what it's about. But fundamentally, Kate, it's a book about 
um, self-doubt. It's a book about confidence. It's a book about, you know, how we hold ourselves back because we think, you know, we're not as intelligent or capable or talented as other people. Well, when I was reading it, I was doing what you were doing when you were listening to that lecture all those years ago. I was nodding my head going, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, yep, absolutely. (laughs) I definitely saw myself there. Yeah, you know, I always tell my audiences, I said, said, this is where I have to break it to you, that you're not special. You know, that over (laughs) 70% of, you know, people feel this way. It's very normal and my my goal in life is to really normalize um imposter feelings because some of the you know the most uh talented people on the planet have talked about imposter feelings my angela said i've written 11 books and every time i write another one i think uh oh i pulled another one over on everyone and they're going to find out yeah Viola that's Davis amazing just recently talked about imposter feelings you know kate winslet tina fey you know, m- many highly accomplished people have talked about what I think are very normal imposter feelings. Hmm. Well, I wonder, you know, the solution how... is to normalize them. Yeah. Yeah. But it, and it's it's kind of an interesting thing. It's it's almost like a cultural thing. I think part of it because I think we're we're taught to think that we need to play down our accomplishments. And right. so we kind of internalize that. Um, and your book details different manifestations of the imposter syndrome. So what are some of, what are some of the other, you know, you have kind of different types of ways these things come into play. What are some of those well, for women and know, men? There's, there's lots of reasons we might feel like an, an imposter. I have a whole chapter called Seven Perfectly Good Reasons Why You Might Feel Like a Fraud. But but the key part is that no matter how you came to these feelings, what everybody who feels like an imposter shares in common is that no one likes to fail or make a mistake or have an off day. You know, we all want to step into a new situation and just hit the ground running. Uh, but when any of these things happen to those of us who feel like imposters, we experience shame. Mm-hmm. Because we feel if I was all that, like this wouldn't be this hard or I wouldn't have made a mistake, or I should have known the answer. Mm -hmm. So uh, over the years, I've observed these different kind of competence types. In other words, we don't all experience uh, failure the same way because we don't all experience competence the same way. So there's, for example, the perfectionist. So obviously for that person, competence is doing everything 100% of the time, you know, flawless, knock it out of the park each and every time. And if that doesn't happen, which invariably it's not going to happen, you're you're going to feel shame and you're going to be very hard on yourself. Now, then there's the, the knowledge version of the perfectionist, the person I call the expert. And for that person, it's not about the quality of their work. I mean, that may still matter, but I mean, for the perfectionist, it's everything. But to the expert, it's about the quantity of knowledge and information you know. And Mm. and in your mind, you can never know enough. There's always Mm -hmm. one more book to read, one more class to take, one more certification to get, one more degree to get. You know, we're searching for this elusive end of knowledge where we Mm -hmm. wake up one day and think, like, now I'm an expert. Now I'm ready. (laughs) So for the expert, shame is going to come. If somebody asks you a question and, you know, God forbid, you don't know the answer. Uh, Another competence type is the person I call the natural genius. Somewhere that person got it into his or her head that if I was really intelligent and capable, competent, this wouldn't be this hard. You know, so the fact that I have to struggle to master something, 
a skill, you know, whether it could be a language, it could be, you know, art, um, you know, a, a subject matter, that kind of proves uh, I'm an imposter because we think for everyone else it's easier. So shame would come if there's any kind of difficulty or, or struggle or you hit a wall. And then the, the soloist or the rugged individualist thinks, you know, it only counts if I do it all by myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they're, they're going to feel, you know, like a failure and shame if, God forbid, they had to ask someone for help or mentoring or coaching or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So fundamentally, it comes down to these very misguided, unrealistic, unsustainable notions about what it means to be competent. Right. I know you're doing a lot of speaking these days. Is this what you talk to your audiences about? And what is the message that most resonates with them? Uh, yeah, I'm speaking a lot. And it's a it's a fascinating topic, Kate, because, you know, I mean, one week I could be speaking at um, Facebook or Stanford, and, and the next week I'm speaking to women in commercial real estate or romance writers of America or, you know, a group of uh, physicians or, uh, you know, it's just a very, it, it crosses a lot of, of, of fields and, and disciplines. Um, and the core message is that people who don't feel like imposters are no more intelligent or capable or competent than you and I. The only difference between them and us is they they think different thoughts. Mm-hmm. In, in the exact same situation where imposter feelings might come up for, for us, they think different thoughts, which is really good news because it means all we have to really do is to learn to think like a non-imposter. In other words, if you want to stop feeling like an imposter, you have to stop thinking like an imposter. Right. And that's what I'm that's what I try to get across. Like let's let's look at look at the thought running through your head and let's reframe it the way a non imposter would. Right. Let me give you an example. Let me give, there was a woman who's who um she was asked to pull together a presentation at the last minute and everyone said she nailed it. Well all she could think was, you know, oh man, that was just a bunch of BS that I threw together at the last minute. And my response to her was, no, the reframe is, like, wow, how good am I that I can pull together information at the 11th hour that other people genuinely find useful? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's the reframe. Another, another woman said, she, she was a medical director at a large hospital, and she said, I feel like an imposter because everyone on the executive committee is brilliantly articulate, and I'm not. Now, there there was a time when I probably would have said to her, oh, I'm sure you're brilliantly articulate. But that wouldn't have served her. So so now I said, well, maybe you're not. <laughs> like, maybe you're not. <laughs> I'm not. I mean, we can't all be brilliant at everything. And that's really right. okay. And that's the big setup is imposters just, you know, we feel like we, we should know everything. We should be brilliant at everything. We shouldn't need any help. And none of that stuff is, is realistic. And non-imposters know it. They look at it like, you know, well, you know, we're all we all entitled to have an off day or be off our game or to make a mistake or not know the answer or, you know, mess up. Yeah. Or to not be good at everything. Absolutely. And, you know, and here's the thing is, is you can be disappointed. You know, if something doesn't work out. I, I did this six minute TED talk down in New York. It was this kind of idea search thing that I was selected to do. And I spent hundreds of uh, hundreds of hours preparing for that practicing and i mean just writing it i mean 6 minutes is hard shorter is harder mm-hmm. um, and i you know i give myself like a a b to a b plus and i wanted of course i wanted an a i wanted to knock it out of the park oh, of i course. know what that feels like 
we all know what that feels like, and I didn't feel that way. And mm. I, I was depressed for, for 24 hours. I definitely was in a funk. Um, but the thing I tell people is you can be disappointed but not ashamed. Like the only mm. time you should feel shame is if you really didn't try. And I knew I had really tried. And, I, and you know, it took, again, it took me 24 hours. Because my goal for myself and others, it's not to not feel like an imposter ever again. Because if you normalize it, then you go, okay, I'm having a normal imposter moment. Mm -hmm. The goal is to just kind of have the tools and the insight to talk yourself down faster. Right. So you can have an imposter, instead of imposter life, you can have an imposter moment. Or for me, that was, a, like, a, like I said, it was about a 24-hour news cycle for me of feeling you know, crushingly <laughs> disappointed. It took me about a week to even watch the video. Um, I watched about 30 seconds of the video, and I had to turn it off because I saw right away where I got off track. Ah. You know, I just saw it. It was painful, and I was like, okay, don't, I'm not going to watch it now. And I came back, and I watched it a few weeks later. and I watched the whole thing, and, and now, you know, when I have that opportunity again, I'm going to learn from it, and that's what non-imposters do. Right. They know you can, you, you know, you can fail, you can have an off day. It's, it's kind of, what are you going to do about it? What can you learn from it to move forward and, and do better next time? Right. Fail forward and keep on moving. Right. And if you're not, if you're not uh, failing, you're not taking enough risks. Right. Yeah. You're not trying, you know, if your life story is everything you did was successful and easy and, you know, I mean, what an incredibly boring story. <laughs> right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Oh, I was born. Everything was perfect. I never, <laughs> never had any right. problems. Never had a problem. And I died. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, and that's why if you think about an athlete, you know, I mean, teams, somebody's going to lose, somebody's going to win, and somebody's going to lose. The losing mm -hmm. team doesn't hang up their, you know, their equipment and their, their uniform and go home. They, they could be sitting there literally crying on the bench. As but we saw all in the, the uh, NCAA when Gonzaga absolutely. lost. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, I mean, they are crushingly disappointed. Sure, but, yeah. You know, at some point, they're going to go back and they're going to watch the game tape and they're going to get more coaching and they're going to keep working at it, and, you know, so they can go, like, get them next time. Exactly. And that's what we have to do as well. Yep. Well, we're almost out of time, but I want to ask you, besides your own book, can you name one book or resource that changed your life that you would recommend to people? Yeah, yeah, kind of, you know, I, I mentioned at the beginning, but I want to, you know, reiterate that. I think on the career side, it really was, first it was Barbara Sher's book, Wishcraft, her first book, that got me really thinking about, you know, what do I love to do? And, you know, we're all entitled to try to strive to work at something that we love. And if I kind of sneak another one in, it would be, you know, a big aha then was connecting that to Barbara Winter's book, Making a Living Without a Job, because that's when I suddenly the light bulb went on that I could create my own job. I could, you know, I could create a livelihood. Mm -hmm. Yes, the two Barbaras, the pioneers, I, I tend to get them confused, unfortunately, <laughs> because they do have the same first name. But yes, both um, brilliant uh, leaders, really, in the whole making a living without a job and creating the life the way you want uh, movement. Yeah, it certainly has, I think, changed a lot of a lot of people's lives, and I would say, including my own. And mine, too. Well, excellent recommendations. Thank you. If you sure. want to learn more about Changing Course, you can go to changingcourse.com. And if you want to read Valerie's book, 
The Secret Thoughts of Successful Women, which I highly recommend. You can find it at Amazon.com and maybe even your local library. If your library doesn't have it, they should, so ask for it. Thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Valerie Young. Thanks, Kate. I really had a great time. I hope you enjoyed this week's show. Next week, my guest will be Pamela Zimmer. Pamela is a professional architect turned stay-at-home mom, number one best-selling author of the book Reclaim the Joy of Motherhood, How I Defeated Postpartum Depression, and founder of Your Permission Pinwheel. As an author, speaker, and mentor, Pamela Zimmer gives moms permission to put themselves first without feeling guilty so they can have peace and balance in their lives. I hope you'll join me. Until then, here's to your authentic first-class life. I'm Kate Fessler. Thanks for listening to Change, Redefining Success. I'm Sandra Yancey, CEO and founder of eWomen Network. We invite you to listen to all of our EWN podcast hosts at EWNpodcastnetwork.com.